Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Uh, some of us are forgetting our simul justus es peccator talk, eh? Remember that? And if not, go back a couple weeks. And we talked about the importance of saints and sinners simultaneously, both righteous and sinner, right? That's your Latin term. There you go. How's that for doctrinal teaching first thing in the morning? Mark your calendar. Ash Wednesday, March 6th. Uh, both at... Um, uh, 6.30 a.m. and 7, or 6.33 a.m., 7.33 p.m., Ash Wednesday, we're going to have a gathering uh, to celebrate, to kick off Lent, and then subsequently, every Wednesday evening from that point till Easter, uh, we'll be gathering for prayer at 7.33, and so I want to invite you as a church to do a 40 days of prayer with us, and uh, Giving one night a week, if your life group falls that night, we want to invite you, or maybe you want to change your life group uh, and uh, to join us for one of those nights, uh, but we want to throw it out there for you and uh, invite you all. So kick off both morning and evening on Ash Wednesday, and uh, subsequently evenings after that. I've also prepared, and, uh, I prepared a devotional, and it's a devotional for you for every day, on average two to three readings that you would follow, a number of questions. Uh, to help you walk all the way to the cross uh, at Easter time. We also have uh, written a Bad Friday gathering, and I am looking for, um, we do a Tannenbrae, which is called the Service of the Shadows. Uh, if you remember last year, pretty powerful. We're, I've changed it up a little bit this year, and uh, I need more people involved. So if you like uh, and you want to be involved and you're okay with doing some lines, some lines are lots, some not so much, and I'm looking for different ages, Ages, size, and colors. How's that sound? And uh, just come and talk to me or email the office and say, I'd like to be involved. And we want to make this a corporate thing. I'm actually really excited. I, I don't get moved much. I don't have an emotional strain in my body. And usually if I do, it's anger. But um, I have to admit, like, I go to the office and I turn on my music and I usually blare everybody out and blank everybody. As a matter of fact, at one point, Elson even walked into my office and I was oblivious to her even being there. And, uh, but just selecting the music, selecting the text uh, for Bad Friday is, uh, yeah, it actually choked me up. It, it really did, the, 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 the gravity of what Jesus went through. And so that's coming, and I'm actually really excited about it. Next week we actually begin a little, we're going to take a step out of Matthew and begin a new series for the month of March called Relational Rehab, You Drive Me Crazy. Okay, you tracking with me? Now it's a series about communication that makes uh, and uh, relationships and working on making relationships healthy. Uh, we're, the book of James will be our focus for the next five weeks in March. Uh, three keys to getting along with others, how to tame your tongue, the power of being a grace giver, the pathway to peaceful relationships, and how to have relationships that heal. So bring a friend or two or three, and uh, we're just going to take March and, and go in a different way. So Today, uh, we pick up our teaching where Jordan McClellan left off last week, and the main point of the parable is that we have to watch our motives. We have to be sure we're serving God because of our love for him and not because of a promised reward like, you know, what do I get out of this? I understand that uh, Jordan did a fantastic job and challenged many people to look at this parable in a very different way. And now I want to continue in Matthew chapter 20. I want to pick it up in uh, verse 17, because at times we are tempted to skip these passages. We jump 
over them. You know, we, we get into a, a little story and, you know, we just sort of jump over them and we don't, and we fail to see the significance of them. And uh, we want to get into chapter 21. That's the triumphal entry of Jesus going into Jerusalem. But I want us to pause and focus on these three sections just before chapter 21. Because they're actually critical for us to understand. So let's pray. Let's take a moment. Put your phones down. Because yeah, I know some of you are just doing it. You can't tell me you're praying when I'm talking. I know that. Let's put our phones down. Let's, let's just quiet ourselves. Maybe you woke up this morning, you looked outside thinking, hey, everything's great, but then realized when you opened your front door or garage that you had six feet of snow to shovel out. You get frustrated. Let's just stop. Father, we just pause in your presence. Settle us, center us, eliminate the distractions. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and allow us all to see. And everything thought and everything spoken and everything felt be blessed by you. Amen. Matthew 20, verse 17, Jesus just concluded telling the disciples about their destinies, right? What their destinies could be and about the nature of the kingdom of God. And there's this equality within it because, because of God's overwhelming grace. Now what he finds is that he takes his disciples aside and he begins to tell them about his own destiny and what awaits him when they arrive in Jerusalem. And this is the third time that Jesus stated that he was going to suffer and die. Uh, and, and the fact that it was a third time and that it was so close to the event should have removed any questions of doubt from the disciples' mind about this upcoming trip to Jerusalem. They should know what's going on. He first told the disciples... Um, when con Peter confessed uh, that Jesus was the Messiah back in Matthew 16, he tells them again what's going to happen after the transfiguration and he heals a demon-possessed boy. Now he takes the disciples aside one more time. And he tries to stress to them what will occur in a, in a few days, in about a week's time. And the passage is clear. Jesus told the disciples that they were going up to Jerusalem where he was going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He was going to be condemned by them. And then he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He tells them this. And what's new about this prediction is the mode of his death and the participation of the Gentiles. See, only the Romans could actually crucify. The Jewish leaders didn't have the right to put people to death. So 
you'll notice that when Jesus is talking to, to his disciples, there's a certainty in the words. He's not saying, well, perhaps or maybe. No, he's very certain. There's no guessing for him of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's absolutely, absolutely clear about what's going to happen. And he's clear right down to the very details. Ordinary people would have turned away if they knew this, but not Jesus. He sets his gaze towards Jerusalem. That's why he came into this world. And he was uh, resolute to go through with it because he knew that there was going to be a resurrection. He knew that. He told them, I am going to rise again. And the way back to glory would be his triumph over death. He knew that. It doesn't make it easy. And it's clear that he knew that he was about uh, about what he was about. He knew his purpose. He knew his mission. He knew now the time is drawing closer for him to lay down his life for the sins of the world. But there are various people who have a part, an active part actually, to play in his death. But the people who are responsible for the death of Jesus are all sinners of the world, when you look at it. All of us. You know, some people are troubled by, with the idea of the father having to sacrifice his son, but they have to remember that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He did this willingly. He gave his life as a ransom for sin. He's going up to Jerusalem to die, but he would be raised to life again. And the response of the disciples is actually perfect, in perfect character for them. Here he is. He's pouring out their heart, and they miss it completely again. It's either they miss it or they simply didn't want to hear it. And for whenever Jesus spoke of his coming death, they either tried to rebuke him or they got into an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And actually that unrest carries right up to the Last Supper. And many in our day don't understand the centrality or the purpose of Jesus' suffering. We don't like that. But the truth is that Jesus' suffering is central in God's plan to redeem men from sin. This is Theology 101. All of the Old Testament symbols and types demonstrated that the Messiah would have to die for the sins of the world that could never pay for the sins itself. Uh, it was predicted that none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. It was predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, uh, that he would uh, be deserted by his friends, he would be pierced while on a cross, that he would be given gall or vinegar to drink, that he would cry out and pain, and that dice would be cast for his garments. And Isaiah 53 predicts all these points in, this, in that passage, which is known as the suffering servant. It's all there in Scripture. And some have looked at the Scriptures and they said, well, the Bible's not relevant today. It's not, it's not for today's world. It's, it's archaic. It's, it's out of date. It's behind the times. And they suppose that humans, you know, we, we've advanced beyond the wisdom of the scriptures. You know, Solomon may have been wise, but today humanity is so much more advanced than Solomon because we have the web and social media, right? We're so much more smarter. And we look at our technology and how life has advanced around us. And in Bible's times, you know, transportation was walking or riding a horse or donkey or a camel. Or you had to sail on a ship. But now we can zip through the air faster than the speed of sound. To communicate with somebody in biblical times, you had to see them, actually. Um, 
or have somebody hand deliver a parchment or papyrus or maybe a tablet of some sort and not this kind of tablet. Now communication can come to us almost instantaneously over thousands of miles in the form of an email, in the form of a text, complete with full color pictures and emojis. Smiley face. And though technology has changed, humanity has not. The human condition has not changed. We're still the same we've always been. You know, it'd be nice if people were getting smarter and wiser than Solomon, but this is simply not the case. Just watch the news. Follow Darwin Awards. Every generation wants to think that it's smarter and wiser and better than the previous, but too often it repeats the same mistakes as the previous generation, showing that it's not any better, but it's often worse. And the reason the new generation makes the same mistakes is that we fail to listen to the previous generation. It's not enough just to know history to keep you from repeating it. You have to pay attention to the lessons. And the section shows us that we're looking at that people have not changed. We're taught, but we don't listen, do we? Humankind is innately self-centered and the desire to gain for ourselves whatever we can. We're no different than ancient man. The, the lesson Jesus teaches his disciples here is as relevant today as it was the day that this story took place. Hey guys, I'm going to go and die. Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Total denial. And then all of a sudden, we see in verse 20 that we see this strange mother's request all of a sudden popping out of nowhere. He's predicting what's going to take place. He's trying to get their attention. It's just not happening. Somebody's mom now shows up on the scene and, and says, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked the favor of them. What is it you want? Jesus said. I love that. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. Now, this is a very bold request for someone to make. To sit on the right on the left hand is, is to be made uh, the two highest ranks in a kingdom possible. Uh, the one on the right means to be the second in command. The one on the left is the third in command. So do you see what this mother is asking? She's asking Jesus to make her two sons the two highest ranking officials in the kingdom under Jesus. Mama's boys. You know, and how can this meddling mother ask such a bold thing? Like, we don't really see it. We, like I said, we tend to jump over. So let's, we're going to stump on this for a bit here. One reason, other than sheer audacity, is that she has a relationship to Jesus. When we actually begin to study and we go back into the crucifixion accounts in Mark chapter 15 and in Matthew later on, we know this woman, her name is Salome. Not Salami, Salome, all right? And she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus' auntie. You jacking with me here? So this is Jesus' aunt, and James and John, that we know who are disciples, well, if that's Jesus' aunt, this means 
these are Jesus' cousins. All right? So here's a closeness of a relationship, and it actually explains to some degree the boldness that she has in coming to Jesus with this request. Here comes Auntie Salome talking to Jesus, saying, can you take your two cousins and make them number one or two and three in your kingdom? And so it's not uncommon when you look at it for people to use their relatives or our relationships, right, uh, as we have developed as a means to achieve some, some sort of greater position for ourselves. There's a whole lot of truth in the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Are you with me? We get it. We often find that, and some of you are going to agree with me a thousand percent on this, we find that there are positions that are not filled with the people who are the best qualified, but those positions are filled by people who have what? The best connections. And in this case, we see the mother of James and John seeking to use her relationship and her influence influence as Jesus' aunt to gain some prominent positions for her two sons, who are Jesus' cousins. But again, that's the natural way of the world. And you notice as well how, how she approaches Jesus. Very, it's very clear. She does as one would approach a, a king from the, from the east. She comes bowing down. She's making a request. You know, kings tend to have big egos and People soon learn that if you come in a matter that magnifies that ego, that you know appeals to that, they can get maybe the king or the queen to give them whatever they want. And I think this is true with most everyone who holds positions of power. Listen to me. We call it sucking up. We see it in our workplace all the time. Maybe you are the recipient of those who suck up around you, or maybe you are the one who does the sucking up. How do you approach your boss for a raise? Do you feed their ego telling them how wonderful they are so that they will be favorable to you? Of course you do. You don't say you're an idiot. You need to pay me more. Chances are more times than not, it works when you suck them up, when you are catering to them. Why? Because we humans like to have our pride built up. We want others to think not only good of us, right? But in some way, we want the sick desire to feel superior to other people. We like that sense of power over people. That should make us all go, ooh, I don't know if I like that about myself. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. So Auntie Salome comes to Jesus seeking to gain favor for her sons and really for herself as well, if you think about it. She, she's got her own motivations here because what mother doesn't want her children to rise to important positions? What mother doesn't want her kids to be success, successful? And so parents, you know, we take pride in how our children turn out, especially if they do achieve important positions. My son, the lawyer. My daughter, the doctor, etc. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that a parent should not take a certain amount of satisfaction in what our kids achieve. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that parents often become proud over their children because they see it as a reflection of themselves. And here we find Salome is just not promoting her two sons for their sakes, but really for her own sake as well, since she would have bragging rights now. 
do you know who my two boys are? <laughs> the woman number two and number three. Yeah, my two sons sit on the left and the right of the king. I have access. I have privilege. And Jesus' answer to her request in verse 20 is actually not really even an address to Salome. But he looks at James and John. He looks at his cousins instead. And we don't know whose idea it was to ask Jesus about these high positions. But it's clear James and John, they're not innocent bystanders. You know, the, the request of their mother is their desire as well. They, they want to be top dog. And Jesus' first response brings them back to reality. You don't know what you're asking for, he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now again, remember, he's just told these guys what's going to take place. He questions them whether they realize the high price that will have to be paid and be counted worthy of the position that they're seeking. You know, that they'll have to be able to drink the cup that Jesus was about to drink. And, and really, this should be a sobering reminder of what Jesus had um, just told them about going to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer things and they'd be delivered to the, the chief priests and the scribes, condemned to death and delivered to the Gentiles and crucified. And he asks the question, and they respond very quickly. They, yes, we can. We can. We can. We can. We can do this. And the quickness of their answer that, you know, they're able to drink this cup demonstrates they haven't really processed, they haven't taken into full consideration all that it would mean. They, like Peter, would later boastfully claim to be able to do something they were not prepared to do yet. Remember, Peter says, I'm going to follow you, no problem, Jesus. And then the rooster crows once, twice, and three times, and he realizes he's denied him. And it's amazing to me, when I look at this, at the same time, not amazing that they would respond this way, it seems amazing that James and John would even have this request on their minds after the strong rebuke that all the disciples received only a few weeks before, when they'd been arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. That was back in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 18. They were rebuked for that, and they're bringing it up again. And it seems amazing that they, it's on their minds. It's still there. And Jesus told them again that he's going to suffer in Jerusalem in just a few days. You think that their minds would be on a whole lot of other things uh, other than you know, what they are going to get out of the kingdom. What's in it for me? This is what I want. And if they couldn't find a way to be an encouragement to Jesus, at least they should have been asking the hows and the whys you know, uh, about him suffering. Like, you know, how does this fit into the Old Testament? And why does it have to be this way? And so on and so on. But no, James and John wanted to know what was in it for them. And they used their mother, or their mother used them and their influence of their relationship to Jesus as a means to attempt to get what they wanted. And too often when you think about it, people, we are no different. Even our prayers often center on what we want rather than God's glory and God's honor. Right? Our prayers center on what we want rather than God's glory and honor. James and John claim that they can drink the cup the same cup that Jesus was about to drink. And in fairness to John, when we actually take time, it was John and Peter 
who followed Jesus after he was arrested. When we look at the story later on. All the other disciples, including James, ran away. Peter later denies Jesus. But it's interesting, we see that John is there. And he's a faithful follower. John is the only disciple, when, you, when we look at the story, who is at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. This maybe shows that maybe he was prepared at this point in time. And in verse 23, Jesus says that they too would actually indeed drink from it. And so, of course, when we study the scriptures, we see that James drank from the cup first. He was the very first of the apostles to be martyred. In Acts chapter 12, we find that Herod kills James with the sword because it pleased the Jews. John drank from that cup as well, but in a different way. John was the only apostle who didn't die a martyr. He lived to be an old man, and he apparently died when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And in some ways, John may have drunk more deeply from the cup of suffering than those who were put to death, for he had to endure the hatred of the world the longest. Someone said it's much easier to die for Christ than it is to live for him. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? James and John did drink the cup of Christ's suffering. The question is, as followers of Jesus, are we prepared to do so as well? Because Jesus tells them that to sit on my right and sit on my left, that this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. Jesus is completely submissive to the Father, and he's not going to usurp his divine order in any way, usurps or his divine order in any way. This is also a reminder that all that we get from God is according to his grace. Remember last week? Including any rewards he gives us for our faithful service. We don't earn them. We receive them simply. What is his goodwill to grant to us? It's his grace. Now, you got to imagine this is going on. So mom, Auntie Salome, comes in talking to Jesus, talking about her two boys being on the right and left. The other disciples are hearing everything that's going on. Scripture says they're indignant. And their in indignation was, was, was not from a sense of concern for what Jesus would be facing. They were indignant that James and John are trying to achieve a higher position over them because of their relationship to Jesus. You know, all of them are still infected with the world's values. And the world's values is that of position, of prominence and power. This is how they're looking at it. This is, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to see this stuff happening. This is what's going on. And the disciples wanted to be great in God's kingdom. That's where their headspace was. But they thought of it in terms of worldly standards. And Jesus takes the time now to teach them how to be truly great. So you got this request. You got this indignation. You got this frustration. The guy is going to go to Jerusalem. I just told you I'm going to die. But you're worried about who's number one, two, three, and four. You're worried about a pecking order. You're not even focused on what's happening. And he calls them together, Scripture says. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Well, not so with you. 
In other words, we're not to be like the world, including the manner in which our rulers and great leaders function. Lord it over. Now, obviously, that's a very strong term that has this idea of ruling down on the people. And that in this day, it was easily understood because when you looked at the governments of those days, it was usually the form of some sort of dictatorship, some sort of tyrannical uh, relationship in nature. And though it's, it's not to the extreme of the ancient dictators who ruled over life and death, the same philosophy, though, still applies today. It drives many people who are in leadership positions, whether it's in government, whether it's in business, and even in Christian organizations, including the church. The drive within humankind is, is to control our future. And that means to be able to control those around us as well. The corrupting influence of power is, is that given a little, the appetite is whetted and the more power is sought and the means by which to gain it becomes insatiable. And sometimes causes us to do the most stupidest things in the world imaginable. I came across a, a commentary where the guy starts talking about um, power abuse within the church structure itself. And he was talking about his own uh, memories of a child and a specific pastor. And I had to laugh because it said that the pastor was known as the little dictator of the church that they attended. And that was in quotes. And, and the pastor was so bent on micromanaging and, and uh, his own power and his own words and his own authority that the only thing that he, uh, he didn't even give you permission to change a light bulb without his okay. Really? Many of us have actually worked under such people, have we not? You know, and the manner of which those type of people treat others makes us wonder somewhat sarcastically. There's a phrase that we used, who died and made you king, right? Some of us have also had to deal at some time with a government bureaucrat who had long ago forgot that they were there to serve the people. Insert political opinions here, said no one ever. I think of Kim and Clark Moran. If some of you know who I'm talking about because they've been here. They've spoken. They're trying to adopt a child in this government red tape in Ghana. And all it does is it takes a simple letter to release this child to them to bring them back to Canada. That's all it takes. But sometimes a government bureaucrat who long ago forgot that they were there to serve the people and instead thinks that they are there to command and issue edicts to the people. There are those who gain power over others, not because they have a position of rulership, but because they have a distinguished place in society or that they have maybe a charismatic personality by which they can capture the fascination of people and that, and that becomes a means by which they can then exploit them. Famous people such as athletes and media personalities and actors, actresses can gain such power because people hold them in awe. And while it may be common practice for those that don't know Jesus to use their power in a tyrannical manner to push around those under him, Jesus tells us in verse 
26, that is not to be this way amongst believers. Jesus tells us that the pathway to greatness within his kingdom is very different. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And the greatness in the kingdom comes in being a servant and a slave. That's what he's saying. Leaders in the church are to be slaves of Christ and servants of his people. And so that term servant here is actually translated from the word deacon. We, we use this word as a title in the church officer, deacons and elders. So we use it within the church structure. A deacon was a person who actually did menial labor, such as cleaning up and waiting on tables. A deacon was a servant of sorts. Jesus made this more, uh, a more noble term by using it to describe his most faithful and favored disciples because it marked out selflessness. It marked out a humble life as to how people are to live. If you want to be great, you have to become a humble, selfless servant. And a true servant will sacrifice for the sake of others in the name of Christ. A fake servant, a sham servant, whatever you want to call it, avoid suffering altogether. If you want to be first, though, you need to go another step, he says. You need to be a doulos. You need to be a slave. So there's servant and there's slave. The slave was a position lower than a servant, for the servant was actually free to, to come and go as they pleased. But a slave was owned by his master and could only do what the master requested. And so the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's a slave. So Jesus' teachings are now coming upside down. The one who's completely sold out to Christ and his kingdom. Paul, when we read in the New Testament, often referred to himself in this manner. He called himself a bond servant. A slave of Christ. He viewed himself as being owned by Jesus since he was bought with a price. Uh, Jesus' own precious blood was that price. And for Paul, to live was to die for, for the Lord. The slave is unconcerned for his own life, his own glory, or his own power. He is, has to be only concerned for his masters. And while many people claim that Jesus is their Lord, very few of them are his slave. And so Jesus is the example of what it means to be great in the kingdom. Jesus is the example of what it means to be a servant and a slave. And he goes on in 28 and says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice he comes back to his teaching all over again. He didn't come to exercise his power over man and to make man serve him. He came to serve men and to pay that ransom to redeem us from our sins. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you can live happy circumstances, people. It's a false teaching. He died so that your bondage to sin could be broken, that you could be re reconciled to God and escape his condemnation and that you could now have an eternal relationship with him. And if that is the example set by our master then what is the mark that we need to make out of our daily life? To be a Christian means to follow Christ. And to be a person who's, and it means to be a person who's, who's devoted to be conformed to his image. And so does humility and servanthood characterize your life? That has to be the first question. Is your concern for what people do for you or what you do for them? 
Is Jesus really your Lord or just a commodity that you're seeking to use to gain what you want? Like the disciple or like the parable from last week. Or are you still seeking after what the world values? Or do you seek what God values? And if we get back to our text, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. He's about to go celebrate the Passover with his disciples. He'll be celebrating for the last time uh, with them. Then he's going to give himself as the one final perfect Passover lamb, sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. This is what it's leading up to. Jesus says that he's leaving Jericho that day, but that isn't the start of the story. Jericho, if you didn't know, was actually a wealthy city. It was a prominent Canaanite town before Joshua walked in in the Old Testament and destroyed it. But over the centuries, they rebuilt it. They established themselves as a resort town. The Jordan River began to irrigate crops and groves and, and the rich minerals of the Dead Sea was a great fertilizer which made their oranges and their bananas and their papaya the best in the land. By the time of Jesus, Jericho was like now another wealthy city all over again. It's where Cleopatra and Herod had their winter palaces. It's where Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector, lived along with many other wealthy Jews as told in the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a wealthy priest and Levite. Both lived, even though they worked in Jerusalem, they lived in Jericho. Jericho had become successful, become prosperous, even very much cultured with a large amphitheater. They had chariot races. Many temples to Greek gods were there. Remember, they were occupied by the Romans. But as in every modern city, there's always those who never benefit from economic prosperity. And this is a story about those two locals. Two long-term residents of Jericho who were beggars. They were living off the charity of others. And frankly, they were tired of it. They were near the end of their rope. And this story is about how they almost missed Jesus. They almost missed Jesus. But their determination not only solves their earthly problems, it actually solves their eternal problems as well. The event, the event is also found in the Gospel of Mark and in and, uh, Luke. Mark tells us that one of these beggars has a name. His name is Bartimaeus. And he has a friend. So Bartimaeus and his friend are sitting beside the road. Luke records that these blind men were sitting there when they heard the multitudes pass by. And, and they're asking, what's the commotion? What's this all about? And they were told that the, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And they knew the name Jesus. They really did. Some said that he was the Messiah. Some said that he could heal blindness. Some said that he was doing all types of physical healing and spiritual healing. But either way, you know, they were about to miss him. And a crowded city is no place for two blind guys to hang out together. But one of them, Bartimaeus probably, he's not about to give up. And with no sight, no help, I, I, I pictured in my mind that they, they found and they felt their way to where they eventually had an opportunity. Maybe they worked themselves away ahead of the crowds. I can imagine it's hot, they're sweaty, they're worn out from climbing over rocks and tribbling and stumbling and whatever else. They're most likely discouraged, right? The, uh, from a life of hard knocks. Their life is filled with that, with disappointments, with unfulfilled expectations. But now, now, let's get a chance to see if we can meet Jesus. And they probably sat there listening to the, what's going on around them, catching their breath, rubbing their sore ankles. And they hear the buzz of the crowd again because their, their hearing is acute. 
And they try to time it just right so that they can call out as he, as Jesus begins to pass by. But they must have misjudged it some way because verse 31 says that when they were calling out, the crowd turns around and rebukes them and tells them to be quiet. You know, there are people who wanted to talk to Jesus about philosophy or politics or invite him to be a part of a business deal or invite him to speak at some event. You know, whatever they wanted from Jesus, they, they knew that he didn't need these two local yokels, so to speak. But they didn't expect Bartimaeus, when he was told to be quiet, to even yell louder. I love this story. Scripture says in Matthew, but they shouted all the louder. So can you imagine? Can you, hey, 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 chill, quiet. No, 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 no. You guys just sh shut up. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see how Scripture comes alive? Can you imagine that? Two out of these three parts of this cry are common. Lots of people beg for mercy in those times. Those troubled in the law, <laughs> the poor, those who are sick, those who suffered all sorts of handicap. Many people would use the term Lord as a sign of respect. You know, to say, Lord, have mercy now is common, so to speak. But they added something that gets Jesus' attention. Because you see, the priests and the Levites were from the tribe of Levi, but the kings of Israel were to be from the tribe of Judah. That's David, King David's tribe. And to call someone son of David was to say that they were from the kingly tribe. To call someone the son of David meant that these two blind men were crying out to the king who's on his way to Jerusalem to make an entry. And if you're a student of the Gospels and you study the New Testament, you'll quickly notice that Jesus didn't respond to every cry or every demand. But on this day, after hearing the word Son of David, Matthew says that he stood still. So you got to imagine Jesus walking, crowds, throngs of people. He hears these voices crying and yelling above the crowd, and it stops him dead in his tracks. Luke tells the story, he says that Jesus commanded the men to be brought to him. And they're led through the crowd to Jesus. Then all three of the Gospels now quote Jesus by saying, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Like, duh, <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? Now, some people say, well, Jesus didn't need to ask that, but, you know, understand that God, though he knows what we need, it, it, it shows faith to ask. But here it is. They, they finally have the Lord's attention. It, it's important for them to stay on task. When you think about it, you finally have the Lord's, many a poor sinner finally has the Lord's attention. You finally have God listening and what do we end up doing? We end up asking for improper things like riches or fame, right? But Bartimaeus knew what he wanted and he stood there blind as is, hearing the voice of God. He asked for something that he knew that God and only God could give. 
He asked for a miracle. Lord, Lord, we want our sights. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight. And what did they do? We, we, they followed him. You see that word followed? They followed him. Matthew alone tells us that Jesus had compassion on them. You must wonder that whether or not when this story was going down and Matthew was watching what was happening, was he focusing on Jesus' face and did he hear his voice? And when he saw Jesus reach out and touch, did he see that compassion? Because that's what he focuses on. And this is actually the last miracle that Jesus did outside of the temple, giving sight and salvation to two blind men in Jericho. This was a work that the Messiah was to do according to Isaiah giving sight to the blind according to Isaiah. But they're in Jericho, which is interesting because remember, Jericho is a city that lay under a curse since the days of Joshua. The fact is, though, here we have the Lord coming through. He can remove the curse and its effects of the curse. And perhaps sometimes you feel maybe you can put yourself in that position of those beggars and you feel maybe that you've missed an opportunity with God. Let me tell you that Jesus wants to talk to you if only you will cry out. You know, we see the demonstrated in the actions of these two blind men how we're to approach God. Notice their condition. They were blind. They were beggars. This is actually our condition spiritually without Christ. Revelation says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's describing our condition without Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be what? Rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Second Corinthians. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds of the God of this age has been blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Lots of imagery here with what we can see and not in a spiritual sense. John chapter 3, and it's in this, and this is the condition that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And we can all say, Amen. Because we get that. We have to see our true condition before we call on Jesus. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Do we see our true condition but these blind guys, when we look at it, were desperate. They cried out. The Greek word there is krazo, literally to cry out in anguish. So when I go, Son of David, have mercy on me, it's the same word that, like a woman crying out in childbirth. <laughs> Can't relate, but you know what I'm sort of saying. Right? That's the same crying out. These guys are broken. These guys are desperate. They cry for mercy. 21 times the psalmist pleads with God for mercy. Luke 18, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
So many times we don't realize what's being said and portrayed in Scripture. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other who, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the cyclical teaching that Jesus, if you want to be first, you need to be last. You need to be a servant. You need to be a slave. You need to be humble. But most importantly here, these blind guys, they believed. They believed in who Jesus was. They were not going to be denied. They were not going to be shut up. They would not be discouraged. Nobody had to beg these guys to come to Jesus. Why? Because they were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and that he alone was their only hope. One of the best parts of this story is that Jesus stops for them. Psalm 4, 1 and 3. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress, so have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call him. How encouraging is that? His arrest, his trial, his, his uh, um, crucifixion is just a few weeks away. Why did he take time to minister to two blind beggars? Why? In light of the disciples' slowness to learn and to believe, why didn't he spend time the last few days alone with them, drilling into their heads what he wants them so much to understand? And the, but the reason why he doesn't is because he's filled with compassion. When better could Jesus have demonstrated the depth and the breadth of divine compassion than while he was on his way to the crucifixion? It's not about him. The twelve would look back one day at the healing of Jericho and all the other acts of mercy and realize that, that Jesus was never too preoccupied to be compassionate. He was never in too much of a hurry to heal the afflicted. He was never in too much pain himself to be insensitive to the agony of others. And the realization itself would be one of the most important lessons that they would learn from their master. And in these few verses is found one of the most beautiful portrayals of the loving and compassionate heart of God. He is moved by compassion. In spite of what's lying ahead for him in Jerusalem, he feels for them. He reaches out to them. He touches them. Why? So that they are healed. And after all this, what happens? The men formerly known as being blind follow him. They had faith, not only spiritually, but also physically. Jesus said, go your way in Mark. He says, your faith has made you well. And immediately they received their sight. They followed Jesus on the road. That word well, that word is sozo in Greek. It means to rescue. Your faith has rescued you. Your faith has delivered you. And so what's the application this morning? I think we, when, when we recognize our lost condition, we realize that we are wretched. We are miserable. We are poor. We are blind. We are naked. The very things that the world tells us that we're not. That we got all of our stuff together. No, we don't. And in spite of all that, we still have to humble ourselves 
before the Lord. James 4 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, we have to cry out to God for mercy. Psalm says, I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I keep your statutes. I cry out to you. Save me. I will keep your testimonies. And then add to it, we need to trust that God to save us. And Isaiah bolsters that. He says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And here's what I love. Jesus saves those who cry out to him. So what about you today? Where do you need the compassion of Jesus in your life? Where do you need the touch of Jesus in your life? Or are you, are you crying out to him? No, I, I, he, knows, he knows my heart. He, he, know, he knows what I'm thinking. Are you crying out to him? Well, you know, I, I don't want to look foolish. You know, I don't want anybody to look at me in a very different way. Are you crying out to him? No. You want to experience the compassion? You want to experience the touch of God? Do we just look at these things and, oh, they're myth or they're story, there's no validity to what's going on, or do we actually see the Spirit working through Jesus, the Spirit working through people, working through us today, that really what the call is is for us as human beings who are wretched and poor to actually begin to respond to a compassionate, loving God who wants to change our lives? And yet we're too proud so many times to even open the doors to let him do it. Why? Because we want to hold on to our sin, our precious. I don't know about you, but, and you know what, I don't know what your problem is. But you and I need the same thing that Bart was asking for. You and I both need mercy. Even before he's healed. Bart saw two very important things. He saw his need. He saw his need. Do you see your need? And the next, he saw an opportunity was passing in front of him. This is critical. The bystanders tell Bart and his buddy, look at Jesus is passing by. And there's this powerful example of how great opportunities pass in front of us. Opportunities come and go, right? Oh, if I only took, oh, if I only bought that ticket, that was my number. You know, you know what I'm saying? And whoever gave us the poker chip uh, from the casinos in the offering last week, we have to have a talk. I just got to say, 50 cents sucks. Just throwing it out there. I think you can do about 50,000 times better than that. Anyway. Bart. Was faced, Bartimaeus was faced with a split second decision that he had to make. If he remained still, if he remained quiet, if he listened to the pressure around him and he shut up, his opportunity for healing would be gone. You know, perhaps you thought, you know, there's a crowd here today. I'll, I'll, I'll catch Jesus the next time. The next time he comes through Jericho, because Jesus was always going through Jericho. There was no next time. And I need to say this, some of you probably today, today, right now, need to do business with Jesus, and you're hesitating. I don't know what that means you do. 
Oh, Jerry, there's just too many people here. I'll do it when I get home. What Bart did not know is that Jesus was to never pass through Jericho again. He went from Jericho to the cross. With that in mind, what makes you think that there'll be a next time for you? And I think what this encounter actually teaches us prior to the triumphal entry is about the critical importance of seizing the opportunity. Seizing the opportunity today. Today you have the opportunity to cry out for mercy. And so my question is, will you do it? And I encourage you to call out to him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why don't you stand with me? Let's do this together. Let's make it easier for everyone. And I'm not speaking, maybe it's not for you and it doesn't apply to you, and that's fine. It's not about you. Just be a servant or a slave. Pick one of the two. It's not about you. But corporately, can we say together, audibly, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Will you do that with me? Now, I have the mic. I can hear my voice. I'm actually tired of hearing my voice. I'm not sure about you. I want to hear your voices. So on three, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. One, two, three. Okay. Let's close our eyes and let's do that with our eyes closed. Let's focus. One, two, three. Now let's do it one more time. Let's lift our hands to the heavens. Let's make this our prayer. Maybe you're here today and you have a bunch of questions about God, Jesus, and the church. I just want you to take out your phone and in a few moments I'm going to pray. And when you do, just text the number on the screen, the word soul. We'll contact you personally. We want to pray with you. We want to answer your questions. We're not going to stalk you. or just something that we care about, your spiritual well-being. And we want to help guide you in this journey. I guarantee somebody will respond to you. But Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. God, you did not send your son so that we would do things the same old way. Jesus didn't come into our lives so that we'd be stuck in a rut. Help us see the things with the eyes of a child. Help us to stop looking over our shoulders and to look ahead for what is to come. Each morning is a new day, a new chance for us to see all the opportunities that you give us. God, we spend a lot of time worrying about how we mess up. We're afraid that you won't love us anymore and we try to hide from you. But but like a loving parent, you stop, you have our attention and you wrap your arms around us. You forgive us and then you send us on our way with yet another chance. So stay with us, God. The path is long. We need you to light the way so that we don't stray from your direction. And God, my prayer for us moving into this spring is to be authentic, real believers that will not only reach out to others, but also draw people to you.
God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see beyond us, that we'd be able to see both our joy and our sorrow corporately. That we'd be able to see what you're accomplishing in your church and what you're accomplishing in the lives of those around us. Help us, I pray, for it's in your beautiful name we ask these things. If you agreed, you would say amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So sanctuary, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. May you allow him to mold you into what he wants you to be. And may you joyfully fill the role he has given to you and feel peace in your soul. Now go and live the church and bring somebody with you next week. Amen.